to John chapter 5. If you are, if you're visiting with us this morning, I want to just again say welcome. Uh, my name is Pastor Michael. I'm privileged to serve as the lead pastor here at New Breed Church. There are four, four of us here who are pastors. We're so honored and blessed that you are here. We're actually in the middle of a series through the book of John, a series that we'll be in for quite a while, a series that we've entitled That You, May, that you Might Believe, as we kind of just look through John's gospel and unpack a little bit of who this Jesus is that we believe in. This morning, we're going to finish uh, John chapter 5, and it's a pretty lengthy text, so we're not going to read it its entirety, uh, but I want to start in John chapter 5, uh, and I want to jump back a little bit and begin in verse 15. So I know you just sat down. I want to invite you to stand out of reverence for God's Word. John chapter 5, beginning in verse 15. I covet your prayers this morning. I'm still battling the sickness and uh, don't have that much of a voice, but y'all going to help me out. Amen? Amen. Oh, we guess it's going to be a good morning. It's going to be a good morning. So let's look at John chapter 5, beginning in verse 15, and I'm going to first just read through verse 18. It says, Then the man went and reported to the Jews that it was Jesus who had made him well. Therefore, the Jews began persecuting Jesus because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. Jesus responded to them, My father is still working, and I am working also. This is why the Jews began trying all the more to kill him. Not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father making himself equal with God. Now I want you to jump down to verse 31. We're going to read out the rest of the chapter. This is Jesus speaking. He says, if I, if I testif testify about myself, my testimony is not true. There is another who testifies about me, and I know that the testimony he gives about me is true. You sent messengers to John, and he testified to the truth. I don't receive human testimony, but I say these things so that you may be saved. John was a burning and a shining lamp, and you were willing to rejoice for a while in his light. But I have a greater testimony than John's because of the works that the Father has given me to accomplish. These very works I am doing testify about me that the Father has sent me. The Father who sent me has himself testified about me. You've not heard his voice at any time, and you haven't seen his form. You don't have his word residing in you because you don't believe the one he sent. You pour over the scriptures because you think you will have eternal life in them, and yet they testify about me. But you are not willing to come to me so that you may have life. I do not accept glory from people, but I know you, that you have no love for God within you. I have come in my Father's name, and yet you don't accept me. If someone else comes in his own name, you will accept him. How can you believe since you accept glory from one another? But don't seek the glory that comes from the only God. Do not think that I have come to accuse you to the Father. Your accuser is Moses, on whom you have set your hope. For if you believed Moses, you would believe me, because he wrote about me. But if you don't believe what he wrote, how will you believe my words? And this morning, I want us to consider this idea of when Jesus doesn't fit in your box, when Jesus doesn't fit in your box. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, Lord, I beg of you that you give me physical and spiritual strength to preach your word to your people, for we are ready to hear from you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. When Jesus doesn't fit in your box, 
You know, we're in the holiday season. I just want to share a little story here as an introduction. I'm, I'm not big on shopping. Uh, I don't know if that's just me fulfilling like the guy stereotype, right? But I really don't like shopping. But here's the irony, right? I really like giving gifts. I enjoy the holidays. You know, Christmas coming up, it's an opportunity to give some gifts away. I enjoy giving gifts, but I am not a fan of the shopping that is required in order to give those gifts. And I get it, right? Support local businesses. Amazon's ruining commerce, right, Wes? I understand. <laughs> I agree. But I'm just going to tell you, I love me some Amazon. I got that two-day shipping so I can lay in bed, buy some gifts. They'll even wrap it for me. So the only thing I have to do is give it, which is the best part. Ev- Amazon is an evidence of God's common grace to me. <laughs> but nevertheless... There are some times when I have to go into a store and shop. Most of the time, it's when we get invited to one of your kids' birthday parties and we convince ourselves that we'll have enough time to go as a family on our way to your party. So what inevitably happens is we don't have enough time, so I go shopping while Aaliyah gets the girls ready. Now here's the thing about me. Some of you who know me well know this. I also really like efficiency, sometimes to an unhelpful degree. So there have been times when I've chosen efficiency over, what's the best way to say it? Common sense. Let me give you an example of what I mean. Recently, for one of your kids' birthday parties, I had to pick up the present as Aaliyah was getting the girls ready. So I hopped in the car, I drove across the bridge to the Target in New Albany. Now, if we're thinking about the most efficient way to use your time in a store like Target to pick up a birthday present, Here's how it goes. I'm going to help some people out. Here's the most efficient way to go through Target. When you walk in, don't waste your time on that discount junk they put in front of you that you're convinced you need for decorations that you're only going to use once and then forget about it. Amen? Amen. Okay, you said amen. I'm holding you to it. So you skip all that. You head down the aisle towards the toys. But as you head to the toys, if you take the right, right route, you'll pass by the party stuff. And so you can go ahead and pick up your gift bag and the tissue paper that you're going to need. So that's what I did. I grabbed the gift bag. I grabbed the tissue paper as I'm heading to the toys. So go in, search through the toys. Took longer than it needed to. But I found the toy that Aaliyah sent me to pick up. I take the toy. I place it next to the bag that I've already picked up. And I realize the present's a little too big for the bag. Now here's where my desire for efficiency can get me in trouble. Rather than being inconvenienced by going back to get a bag that's a better fit for the box, I convince myself I can fit the present in the bag and just cover it with an excess amount of tissue paper. So I did that, got it ready in the car, went back to pick up the girls so that we could go to the party that we were already late for. And when Aaliyah saw the present in the bag with the tissue paper barely covering the gift, she rightly and in love made fun of me for what the present looked like. Because the gift clearly didn't fit the bag that I had. And you may be thinking, all right, Michael, what's the point of this story? Oh, I'm going somewhere. Stick with me. Here it is. Listen to me. It's comedic when we're unwilling to be inconvenienced enough to rework the box that a gift goes in when it comes to a birthday present. It's funny. It's spiritually dangerous if we're unwilling to rework our theological boxes when Jesus doesn't fit nicely into them. Now, here's what I mean. Each and every one of us have theological boxes. 
things that we believe about God, the world, humanity, and oftentimes, if we're honest, it's not Jesus who's shaping those theological boxes. Sometimes our political leanings shape our theological boxes. Sometimes our experiences shape our theological boxes. Sometimes the faith traditions that we grew up in shape our theological boxes. Here's the thing, none of those things are bad in and of themselves, but it becomes very dangerous when they shape our theological perspective rather than letting Jesus shape what it is that we believe. So what we do, and here's where it gets spiritually dangerous, is we try to fit him into the boxes that we've created for him. We try and cut off the parts of Jesus that don't neatly fit. We try to bend areas that were never meant to be bent. We try and remove any obstacle that presents itself that would keep Jesus from fitting neatly into the way that we view the world and the way that we think things should go. And rather than letting Jesus define the terms of our faith, we try and make Jesus fit what we already think, how we think he should act, what we think he should do, how we think he should work in our lives at any given moment. And I just want to tell you this morning, here's the premise, here's the big idea. Unless Jesus defines the box, Jesus will never fit neatly into your box. And when that happens, when he doesn't fit, the only faithful response, it's not to bend Jesus, it's not to cut Jesus, it's not to fold him, it's to throw away the box. You see, when, what we encounter in our text this morning is Jesus confronting the theological boxes of the Jewish religious leaders. He's challenging what they believe to be true, what they believe to be true about the word of God, about the law of God, and about the Messiah himself. So let me kind of recap where we are in the book of John. The end of chapter five is part two of what we encountered last week. So if you weren't here last week, or if you're one of those people who forgot, don't worry, there's grace for you too. Let me recap where we were at the beginning of chapter five. So at the beginning of chapter five, another Jewish festival is taking place. I mentioned last week how the next few chapters, I believe it's through 11, kind of enters this, this, uh, this festival cycle, if you will. And, and everything that Jesus is doing centers around a festival. The actions of Jesus are already they're always tied to a specific Jewish festival. Now, we don't know which festival this is. John never makes mention of it, but we know that he's it's taking place in Jerusalem, and so Jesus is traveling to Jerusalem. And if you remember last week, I'll give you the short version, right? So as Jesus enters the city of Jerusalem, he doesn't go to where the high and elite and lofty and wealthy people are. He goes to the place where the broken and the lame and the blind and the sick are. He goes to the pool at Bethesda. And there was an understanding at the pool of Bethesda, right, that when the water was stirred, the first person that got into the water was healed. And we talked about, right, last week, we don't need to try to explain away the supernatural parts of the Bible, amen? Like there can be some mystery to our faith. So there's a common belief that whoever gets in there first will be healed of whatever ailment they have. And so Jesus approaches one man and he asks him one question, do you want to be made well? Do you want to be made well? And we saw how the man, not knowing who Jesus was, not knowing what he had done, having no idea who this guy was, he looks first at his obstacle and says, man, I want to, but there's no one who can put me in the water. And what does Jesus do? He says, get up, take your mat and walk. And immediately the man got up and he picked up his mat and he walked. Now here's where some of the trouble came for Jesus. All of this was taking place on the Sabbath. 
And so after Jesus heals this man, he kind of dips into the crowd, right? So the Jews is what, is what John calls it, but we know it's the Jewish leaders, the religious leaders at the time. They go up to this man, and they're basically like, hey, what are you doing? It's the Sabbath. Why are you carrying your mat? And he's like, hey, man, this guy just healed me. And he said, pick up the mat. So I picked up the mat. And they're like, yeah, you can't do that. It's the Sabbath. Who is this guy? But he didn't know who Jesus was. And he said, man, he slipped away before I could figure out who he was. Well, Jesus then finds this man in the temple. And he says to him, hey, not only have I healed your body, but go and sin no more so that something worse won't happen to you. And then the man understands he knows who it is. It's Jesus. So he goes back to the religious leaders and he basically says, hey, I know who this guy is who healed me. His name's Jesus. And so that's where our story picks up. The religious leaders now know who Jesus is and they're frustrated that he's doing things on the Sabbath. Now, in their defense, there were Old Testament laws addressing the Sabbath, right? So Exodus 31 verses 12 through 14 is an example. The Lord said to Moses, tell the Israelites, you must observe my Sabbaths, for it is a sign between me and you throughout your generations so that you will know that I am the Lord who consecrates you. Observe the Sabbath, for it is holy to you. Whoever profanes it must be put to death. If anyone works on it, that person must be cut off from his people. But see, what had happened is that the Jewish leaders, what they'd done through their oral tradition is they'd actually added stipulations to that that the Bible never put on it. And one of the additions was that they declared that it constituted work to carry something from one domain to another on the Sabbath. So in essence, this man picking up his mat and walking with it was a direct violation of the Mishnah Shabbat, of the, of the oral tradition of the Jews. So based on their tradition, not only was Jesus healing on the Sabbath, therefore breaking the Sabbath, but he was also instructing others to break it as well. So they're angry about this. They're frustrated. But there's something else, right? For, for some of the individuals, specifically the religious leaders, there was this belief that the coming of the Messiah was linked to the perfect keeping of the Sabbath. So part of the reason they were so dogmatic about keeping the Sabbath is they believed that if we can just do this right, the Messiah is going to show up. So in other words, right, if we keep the law faithfully enough, if we are righteous enough, then the Messiah will come. So understand what they are saying. We can earn the presence of the Messiah if we are just faithful enough. Now let me pause here because I just can't pass by that. We ought to praise God that the presence of Jesus has never been dependent on how faithful we are. That the presence of Jesus is always the result of how faithful he is. And you and I, if we're honest, have to daily put to, get, put to death this notion that we can somehow earn more of God's love by what we do. Like, I can't be the only one who struggles with that. Like, that when I sin, God loves me less. Like, when I'm on the top of my, like, religious game, like I'm being the pastor of pastors, the Christian of Christians, then he loves me more. But the thing that the Bible tells us about God is that God has a perfect love which means he cannot love you any more or any less than he does right now because it is a perfect love that he has for you and it has never depended on how well you perform. The faithfulness of God, the presence of God has never depended on your faithfulness, but it's always been the result of his. So going back to our story, right? They thought if they could keep the Sabbath, the Messiah would come. But check this out. The very presence of Jesus in John 5 reminds us Sabbath rest doesn't lead to the coming of the Messiah. The coming of the Messiah is what leads to our Sabbath rest. So even in this, Jesus isn't fitting into their theological boxes. 
And rather than reevaluate their box, they begin to persecute Jesus. That's what the text says. But in our text, what we're going to talk about this morning, Jesus actually takes it further because he defends himself. And in so doing, he garners even more hostility. It's ultimately this defense that Jesus gives in John 5. It's the reason that he's crucified by the Jews. So there are three things that I want you to see this morning as we work through our text. Now, I'll be transparent with you. I debated breaking this section up into three sermons because there's so much there. Jesse texted me last night, Pastor Jesse, and he said, man, how's the sermon going? And my response was just, it's so complicated. (laughs) And he didn't respond, so I guess he just left me to figure it out by myself and was like, well, good luck to you, Pastor. No, but we're going to try to cover it all in one shot. And we'll just see what happens. Amen. So three things I want you to note. Here's the first thing that I want you to see. We've had some delay with our screens. I apologize for that, but hopefully you can see what I'm I'm clicking. But the first thing that I want you to see is I want you to note the claim of Jesus. The claim of Jesus. And we see it there in verses 17 and 18. So here's what it says. So they've come to him. They're frustrated with him because he's working on the Sabbath. And Jesus responded to them. This is what he says. My father is still working and I am working also. This is why the Jews began trying all the more to kill him. Not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself, here it is, equal to God. So watch this. Jesus justifies his work on the Sabbath by linking himself directly to God the Father. You see, for the Jewish leaders who are listening, and Jesus actually agrees with them on this, They both recognize that while man was to rest on the Sabbath, God does not rest. God continues to work. It was a common belief among Jewish leaders because they understood rightly that if God stops working, this world collapses. That God is governing in his providence 24-7, 365 days a year. He never stops working. He is still at every, even today on our Sabbath day, right? He is knitting together babies in their mother's wombs. He is welcoming people into glory who have passed, who have faithfully followed him. God is working. Don't tell me God is not working in this place right now. So they understood and Jesus agreed that God doesn't have to observe the Sabbath. And so when Jesus says, my father is still working and I am working also, what he means and what they understood, it's what they heard, as John tells us, is that Jesus was offering a claim, making himself equal to God the Father. So here's a a side note, free before you. Don't buy into the argument that some people will make that Jesus never actually claimed to be God. Because here it is in our text this morning. Jesus claimed to be equal with God. It's what John tells us. It's what the Jews understood. By him saying, my father is working and so am I, they said, oh, he's saying he's God. So what this tells us though, right, is that with Jesus, based on this claim, there really are only two options. He can't just be a good moral teacher. He can't just be an example of an ethical human. He is not merely a religious teacher. Jesus is either a liar Or he is the divine son of God, God in flesh. Those are the only two options. And it was this claim that brought about the most hostility with the religious leaders. And as a result, they wanted nothing more than to see Jesus die. But can I tell you this morning, as harsh as that might be to think of them wanting Jesus to die, 
It's actually that same claim by Jesus that gives us the most difficulty as well. Because if Jesus is God in flesh, then he does not just have claim over your morality. He does not just have claim over what you do on Sunday mornings. He does not just have a claim over religious, the religious parts of your life. If Jesus is who he says he is, then Jesus has the right to lay claim to the entirety of your life. He is declaring that he is king of kings and lord of lords, and we got to be honest this morning that sometimes that claim does not fit neatly into our theological boxes because we want Jesus on our terms. We want Jesus to be our moral guide. We want Jesus to help us out when we can't help ourselves, but ultimately we just want Jesus to justify the way we're already living. But the claim that Jesus makes is not simply that he will be a part of your life, but that he has lordship over all of your life. And the religious leaders, they couldn't take this claim. But after Jesus makes this claim, he actually offers a defense. So let me show you the defense of Jesus. So we've heard the claim of Jesus. Now we've got to look at the defense of Jesus. And we see it in verses 19 through 30. And here's how the defense goes. There are actually three parts to Jesus' defense. The first part is this. Jesus offers his defense by, again, identifying himself with God the Father. So that's the first part of his defense. He identifies himself with God the Father. Look at verses 19 through 20 again. Jesus replied, Truly I tell you, the Son is not able to do anything on his own, but only what he sees the Father doing. For whatever the Father does, the Son likewise does these things. For the Father loves the Son and shows him everything he is doing. And he will show him greater works than these so that you will be amazed. So right, Jesus is saying here, I'm not doing anything that I do on my own. Nothing you have seen or heard is contrary to what God has called me to do. But even more, Jesus is actually declaring that nothing I am doing is contrary to the heart of God. See, this reminds us of something that John said earlier about Jesus in John 1, verse 18. No one has ever seen God. The one and only Son who is himself God and is at the Father's side, he has revealed him. Right? So Jesus is going to mention this again in verse 37, but the idea is that if you want to know what God the Father is like, you look at God the Son. See, here's the thing, and maybe it's just me. If we're honest, I think oftentimes God the Father gets a bad rap. I think he gets a bad rap, right? Like we see Jesus as the loving part of God, the compassionate part of God, the gentle part of God, the one who keeps us away from our angry father, right? Like we read passages in Hebrews about Christ being our mediator, and we think, man, if it wasn't for Jesus, God would just get me. We have this idea that somehow like Jesus is in heaven, like fighting off our angry father to keep him from destroying us. That's what we think of when we think of Jesus mediating for us. That man, if he steps aside, God's just going to get us. But what this text is positioned to teach us is that Jesus' heart, Jesus' compassion, Jesus' love, Jesus' care, it's a reflection and the result of the very heart of God the Father. Because God the Father has a heart of compassion and love and care, and grace, and mercy. So when John writes in John 3, 16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him will not perish but have ever, everlasting life, he's not joking. Like God genuinely loves you. And this ought to get us, give us a little bit of hope as we look at Jesus, right? Because if Jesus is a reflection of God's heart, then when God says I'm for you and not against you, 
When God says that I'm near to you in your brokenness, when God says that he will never leave us or forsake us, Jesus is the evidence to us that all those promises are true. So Jesus begins his defense by saying, listen, I and the Father are one. But then he offers even more evidence in his defense because second, the second part of his defense, he says, basically, just as the Father gives life, I give life. Right? So, so we've seen that he, he again, ties himself to the Father. And then the second part of his defense, he says, and I have the power to give life. We see this in verse 21 and verses 24 through 26. So look at verse 21. He says, and just as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, so the Son also give life, gives life to whom he wants. And then verses 24 through 26. He says, truly I tell you, anyone who hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. And you will not come under judgment, but have passed from death to life. Truly I tell you, an hour is coming and is now here when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God. And those who hear will live. For just as the Father has life in himself, so also he has granted the Son to have life in himself. Now here, Jesus is making an argument that the religious leaders would understand. Because the ability to give life was understood as evidence of the presence of God for the Jewish leaders. Right? We see it in the very beginning in creation. Genesis 1.1, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. And when God creates, what does he do? He breathes the breath of life into man. It's the presence of God that causes life to form. But even beyond that, right? The religious leaders had a category for the people who represented God by the power of God being able to actually give life. Think of Elijah, right? The prophet, 1 Kings 17, verses 21 through 24. Then he stretched himself out over a boy three times. He cried out to the Lord and said, Lord God, please let this boy's life come into him again. So the Lord instructs Elijah and the boy's or, or so the Lord listened to Elijah and the boy's life came into him again and he lived. Then Elijah took the boy, brought him down from upstairs room of the house, gave him to his mother. And Elijah said, look, your son is alive. And then the woman said this to Elijah, now I know you are a man of God and the Lord's word with your mouth is true. Right? But here's the thing. Jesus isn't just claiming to be another prophet like Elijah because he says explicitly in verse 26, not that the father has given him the ability to raise dead like Elijah, but in verse 26, he says, just as the father has life in himself, so he has also the granted the son to have life in himself. The life that Jesus produces flows out of his very nature and character. Right? He's making this claim that Jesus himself has the power to give life. It's the very thing the author of John actually claims in the introduction to the book of John. In John 1, 4, in him was life. And that life was the light of men. And what Jesus is doing is not only giving a defense, but he's preparing them for what he's going to do. First in the immediate sense and then in the long term. Right? He's prepping them for the very fact that in just a few chapters, he's literally going to raise Lazarus from the dead. And that's a foreshadowing of an even greater resurrection because what greater testimony is there than one's ability to ra- uh, for, of one's ability to raise life than to be able to raise themselves from the dead. And what Jesus is doing is not only telling them who he is, but he's telling them what he's all about. So Jesus' defense is that he and the Father are one, and beyond that, he has the power to give life. But his defense doesn't stop there because after he declares that he has the power to give life, he offers a third piece of evidence. He says that not only do I have the power to give life, but I have the authority to judge. I have the authority to judge. Side note, that's Jesus' twofold purpose for coming to earth. To give life and to judge. You want to know what Jesus' ministry is all about? It's that in a nutshell. To give life and to judge. 
But we see this argument of Jesus in verse 22 and then verses 27 through 30. So in John 5, 22, it says, The Father, in fact, judges no one, but has given all judgment to the Son. Then back in, jump forward a little bit to verse 27. It says this, He has granted him the right to pass judgment because he is the Son of Man. Do not be amazed at this because a time is coming when all who are in their graves will hear his voice and come out. Those who have done good things to the resurrection of life, but those who have done wicked things to the resurrection of condemnation. I can do nothing on my own. I judge only as I hear, and my judgment is just because I do not seek my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And so once again, this is an action, this is a declaration that the religious leaders would have understood as belonging to God the Father, that God the Father gives life, God the Father is the one who judges. But Jesus is saying, I give life and I judge. But this rationale that Jesus gives, and it really offers a beautiful segue to our final point. We'll we'll get there in a moment, but, but he gives the rationale for this. Notice what he says in verse 27. And he has granted him the right to pass judgment because he is the son of man. That designation by Jesus, son of man, is a very significant designation. It's the way that Jesus most often refers to himself in all of the gospels. Here in the book of John, it's a designation that we see 12 times, 10 of which are spoken by Jesus himself. And the origins of this designation come from Daniel 7, verses 13 and 14, where Daniel is having a vision, and he records this, I continued watching the night visions, and suddenly one like the Son of Man was coming with the clouds of heaven. He approached the Ancient of Days and was escorted before him. He was given dominion and glory and a kingdom so that those of every people, nation, and language would serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away, and his kingdom is one that will not be destroyed. And every time Jesus refers to himself as the Son of Man, he is saying this to be true about himself, that I am the one through which every tribe, tongue, and nation will come. I am creating a kingdom that will last forever and will not be destroyed. I am the Ancient of Days, the Son of Man. So the reason Jesus has authority to judge is because he's the eternal son. He has dominion and glory and power and his kingdom will last forever. So what Jesus is saying is the reason I have authority is because I have always been and I always will be. And the father himself has given me this authority. So what Jesus is doing is he's giving them the full scope of his ministry. He has come this first time to give life. Right? That's John 3, again, 16 and 17. For God so loved the world, he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him will not perish, but have everlasting life. But verse 17, for God did not send his son into the world to judge the world, but that the world might be saved through him. So the first visit of Jesus is about giving life. But there's a second visit. And when Jesus comes again, it's to judge. There will come a time when the son will come again. But this time it will not be to give life, it will be to judge the world. Now, there's so much more we could say about this, but I'm running out of time, and we got a Thanksgiving dinner we got to set up for, so let me just say this. Jesus' entire defense is that he's united to the Father and has power and authority. You see, it's one thing to just have power. It's another thing to have authority, too. So let me try to draw out a little application before we move on. I think the hesitation that we so often have to recognize Jesus as Lord of our life makes no sense when we consider this defense that Jesus just gave. Because if he is the God of compassion, love, grace, and hope, and has power and authority, 
why would we not want him to be Lord of our life? Because this defense Jesus offers declares to us, not only is he good, but he has the power and the authority to allow you to experience and participate in that goodness. Right? Our God is not a weak God. Our God is not a God of talk and no action. Our God is not only good, but he has the power and the authority to allow you to participate in that goodness. So let me make it as plain for you as I can. Any promise that God offers us is a promise offered with the power to back it up. Amen? So if God says he will work all things together for your good, he has the power to work all things together for your good. If he says that he will take your mess and make a miracle, he has the power and the authority to work those miracles. If God says that he will meet all your needs with the riches of his glory, he has the power and the authority to meet all your needs with his riches and his glory. And so surrendering your life to the lordship of Jesus, please hear me, surrendering your life to the lordship of Jesus is not a burden to bear, but a joy to be lived in. It's not a burden to bear. It is a joy to experience in its fullness. But all of this is only true if what Jesus is saying about himself is true. So we kind of see he's on trial here, right? Not officially, but he's on trial. So he makes his claim. He offers his defense. But after he offers his defense, he does what any good defendant should do. He offers some witnesses. And so the last thing that I want you to see, and then I'm in my seat, is the witnesses for Jesus. Look again at that last section, beginning in verse 31. He says, if I testify about myself, my testimony is not true. There's another who testifies about me, and I know that the testimony he gives about me is true. You sent messengers to John, and he testified the truth. Now, I don't receive human testimony, but I say these things so that you may be saved. John was a burning and shining lamp, and you were willing to rejoice for a while in his light. But I have a greater testimony than John's. Because of the works the Father has given me to accomplish. These very works I am doing testify about me that the Father has sent me. The Father who sent me has himself testified about me. You've not heard his voice at any time and you haven't seen his form. You don't have his word residing in you because you don't believe the one he sent. You pour over the scriptures because you think you have eternal life in them. And yet they testify about me. But you're not willing to come to me so that you may have life. I do not accept glory from people, but I know you that you have no love for God within you. I have come in my Father's name, and yet you don't accept me. If someone else comes in his own name, you'll accept him. How can you believe since you accept the glory from one another, but you don't sink the glory that is to come from the only God? Do you think that I will accuse you to the Father? Your accuser is Moses, on whom you have placed your hope. For if you believed Moses, you would believe me, because he wrote about me. So again, I'm going to give it to you quick. I should have done three sermons. I'm going to give it to you quick because we're running out of time. See, Jesus understands the law. And he understands that for a testimony to be valid, it needs two or three witnesses. Right? That's Deuteronomy 19.15. So even Jesus, right, trying to follow the law for a testimony to be valid can't just be one person. You need two or three witnesses. And so first he says in verse 33, I got some witnesses. John the Baptist was a witness. He testified. Remember John 1, 29, the next day John saw Jesus coming toward him and said, look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And Jesus says, listen, to the religious leaders, he says, listen, y'all were cool with him. Like you went to him, you enjoyed him. You rejoiced in his proclamation that the Lamb of God had come. But now that I'm here in front of you, you want nothing to do with me. 
That's one witness. But then Jesus says, the works I do, that's verse 36, the very works that I do testify that I am from God. I mean, at this point, he's already turned water into wine. The Bible tells us he's performed many miracles that weren't even recorded yet, right? He, he healed the royal official's son. He has now raised. They have seen in this man that they're mad that he's working on the Sabbath, that he has been healed after being an invalid for 38 years. And Jesus is saying, look, the works I do testify that I am who I say I am. But then he says, all right, if that's not good enough for you, the Father himself testifies. That's verse 37. But then Jesus offers a fourth witness, and it's where he's going to spend the rest of his time. He says that the very word of God, the word that they claim to cling to, testifies to who he is. Look again at verse 39. He says, you pour over the scriptures because you think you have eternal life in them, and yet they testify about me. Then jump down to 45. Do not think that I will accuse you to your father. Your accuser is Moses, on whom you have set your hope. For if you believed Moses, you would believe me because he wrote about me. What Jesus says is that all of Scripture is about him. That this book that they claim to love, from Genesis to Revelation, it's always been about him. The very word of God, Jesus says, testifies that I am the Son of God, the Messiah, the Savior of the world. I know I got to go, but I'm going to preach it like I feel it for just a minute, okay? Jesus is reminding us that he is creation's breath of life, that he is the patriarch's promise, that he is Israel's deliverance, that he is the covenant keeper. He is David's dynasty. He is the Psalm's song. He is the Proverbs' wisdom. He is the prophet's hope. And everything that has been written in the Old Testament was written to declare to us that this Jesus, he is Lord of lords, King of kings, and there is no one like him. He is the one who was born of a virgin, who was perfect in righteousness, who suffered under Pontius Pilate, who was crucified on a hill called Calvary, who died for the sins of the world and then rose to life on the third day. This Jesus is King of kings and Lord of lords. This Jesus is God in flesh. And this Jesus has come so that you and I, by believing in his name, can have life eternal. But as we close, here's the question we have to answer, and it's an important question. How did they miss it? How did they miss it? Because it's one thing to be like, man, they suck. But it's another thing to maybe try to glean a lesson. How is it that they miss it? They knew the scriptures. Fam, I'd take a Pharisee over knowledge of the Old Testament over yours. I'm just being straight with you. They knew it. They knew Moses. They knew the covenants. They knew the promises. They knew the law. They added a lot to it, but they knew it. How did they miss Jesus? How did they stand in the presence of John the Baptist and say, yes, the Messiah is coming, and Jesus shows up and be like, let's kill him? How do they see a man raised who's been an invalid for 38 years, praising God in the temple, and rather than have joy, be like, who did this to you? Because it's the Sabbath. How did they miss it? I'll do you a better question. Why do we miss it? Well, Jesus tells us in verse 44, how can you believe since you accept glory from one another but don't seek the glory that comes from the only God? 
Can I paraphrase it for you? Jesus didn't fit in their box. He didn't fit what they thought the Messiah should be. Jesus didn't do what they thought the Messiah should do. They wanted the glory that they had from one another rather than a better glory. And so they missed him. Here's my plea to you this morning, and then I really am done. Don't miss Jesus. We don't get to define who he is and what he does. He is more than capable of doing that himself. Our responsibility is to see him for who he is and bow in reverence, worshiping him because of what he has done for us. The fact that he is even in the story, in the Gospel of John, walking this earth. That when we rebelled against God, when we couldn't get to God, God loved us so much that he came to us. That he faithfully fulfilled the law like we should, but we can't. He was perfect in all of his ways, and yet he died a sinner's death. They put nails in his feet. They put nails in his hand. They crucified him. He died on that tree, and they put him in a tomb. He was in the tomb on Friday, stayed in that tomb on Saturday, but then early Sunday morning. He proved, I have life in myself. And so when Jesus doesn't fit into your box, throw out the box and take Jesus instead. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, God, give us grace to see you for who you truly are. Not our ideas of you, not our made-up fairy tales. God, I pray that we would see who you are and that we are made in your image and realize we can never make you into ours. But God, my prayer is that we would see the beauty and the majesty and the worth of Jesus who sacrificed himself that we might have life eternal and that we would worship, believing that surrendering our life to Jesus is not a burden to bear, but a joy to be lived in. Help us, Father. We give you all praise and all glory. In Jesus' name, amen.